hello, and welcome to the Should I Go See It podcast. I'm your host, Bill George. With me, as always, AJ Rebecki. AJ, hello. What's going on, Bill? What's going on, AJ? Uh, we also have much. super producer Craig Stanton on the line. Hello, fellas. Hey, Craig. Howdy. All right, well, welcome to the show. Uh, we're going to kick it off here, uh, Act One, if you will, uh, with some news from Hollywood. Uh, AJ, you've been keeping an eye on on the news, uh, and you got some stories for us today? Sure have. They don't call me Scoops Rebecca for nothing. We have a couple top stories around the industry that I would love to get your thoughts on uh, today, and we're going to kick it off with an AV Club article by uh, William Hughes reports that Ben Affleck says filming Justice League was, quote, the worst experience ever. Uh, on the tail of that comes uh, a Joss Whedon rebuttal and some, um, you know, kind of other takes from members of the Justice League team. Um, how much of a piece of shit is Joss Whedon, and who do you believe? Uh, Joss Whedon does seem like a uh, not-so-great person to work for, based on all accounts. Uh, I believe it when when Affleck says it was terrible. It seems like Justice League in general was a disaster for all involved, based on what I'm seeing. Uh, Ray Fisher, obviously the one who has come out, the the actor who played Cyborg in the film, has said that Joss Whedon had despicable behavior on set, but never actually disclosed publicly, at least, what that behavior was, which is kind of a big question mark. And then Gal Gadot also said that Joss threatened her career, uh, but she talked to Warners directly and said he wasn't a problem after that. But the funny thing about the Gal Gadot thing is that uh, Joss Whedon <laughs> said that it was a language barrier in the way he was communicating with Gal and that she just didn't yeah. get she just didn't get him. Yeah. And then she was like, uh, no, I understood perfectly what was happening. Right. Right. Her response was great. So, uh, yeah, it does sound like Joss uh, is is a bit of a nightmare to work for. And Ben saying it was a terrible experience. I mean, not only do you have to deal with the Joss thing, whether Affleck felt that or not. But you got to think about that movie too. Thinking back on why it went to Joss was Zack Snyder having a family tragedy with his daughter, uh, tragically taking her own life and him having to step away. And Affleck signing up to do, do these movies with his buddy Zack, a director he believes in, all of a sudden has to step away for this terrible situation. Yeah. And now Affleck has to keep going with the project under Joss's, uh, you know, oversight. It just, the whole thing just seems like a mess. Yeah, it was a disaster. Plus, reshooting, uh, I mean, the, the, the reshoots, the scheduling conflicts, like you said, the, the, the things that were going on with Zach, um, it just seemed like it's just an utter and total nightmare. And and I guess my, my question before we move on, do you think uh, this publicity around this, is Joss Whedon canceled? Is he done in Hollywood for a good amount of time? Or do you think he'll still get work? I feel like he it's hard to argue the success of of the Avengers, uh, which Joss, you know, really made work. I mean, that was the first time they crossed over all the heroes. There was a question of whether something like that could work, you know, with all these heroes in one movie and Joss made it work. And it's still to this day, potentially the best Marvel movie, depending on who you ask. And I don't think that gets thrown away. I feel like he is probably going to be. I think it's going to be similar to like M. Night Shyamalan when he had a string of terrible, terrible movies. Yeah. He was still working, but it's they stopped 
sort of throwing his name out there. They stopped yeah. saying from M. Night Shyamalan because they knew that that was a bad reaction from audiences based on recent experience. I bet Joss Whedon will keep working behind the scenes, but they won't make a thing about the fact that he's involved anymore whatsoever. Um, but I don't know that he's going to never work in this town again, so to speak. I don't know that we're that far in yet. We'll see if anything else comes out or if Ray Fisher shares more about what actually happened on set that would really get the gears turning for that. But I get the feeling he'll still be behind the scenes. In a recent interview with Variety, uh, Andrew Garfield, um, in promoting his uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda movie, Tick, Tick, Boom, on Netflix, said that he uh, wouldn't say no to playing Spider-Man again. Uh, Bill, does Andrew Garfield know that he's no longer Spider-Man? Like, they've moved on. <laughs> they did. And, and frankly, I'm ready to move on as well. I, I saw this news, and the first thing I thought is, like, please, please don't. <laughs> like, you know, we talked about Spider-Man in the last episode. Um, spoilers at this point. Sorry, everybody. Uh, it made like a billion dollars. So I'm guessing people know by now. Uh, but Garfield re- reprises his role as Spider-Man in the film. And I get why he'd be open to it. I mean, that he is often heralded in these reviews as the best part of the movie. But personally, I don't need any more. I feel like that film did such a great job providing closure to him and Toby and their versions of Spider-Man that it was like, perfect. Like, don't touch it. Like anything now would be diminishing returns to me. And I feel like you just got to let that legacy live on and, and leave the audience wanting more. That's the whole point of doing it right. Uh, I think if they run into the ground with more movies, it's just going to be a mistake. And, and then Spider-Man No Way Home will become one of those many properties where we say, oh, it was great until XYZ. Just like, Game of Thrones, just like The Matrix, just like any other thing. It becomes, oh, that was great at first, and then they ruined it. Like, I'm afraid that that's what will happen with Garfield Spider-Man if they kept going. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was one of the dumbest pull quotes I've read in a very long time. Like, he's done. Man, like, you're done. H- hang it up. You're not going to be recasted as Spider-Man. We're, we're moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, we got the closure we needed, and uh, I think we're done with Andrew Garfield being Spider-Man. I will say, though, uh, watching... Andrew Garfield and uh, Tom Holland act uh, with Tobey Maguire, you just realize like how good those guys are compared to Toby. Toby, yep. Toby was really lacking in many parts of the movie. Um, uh, but I, I wish him the best in his endeavors. And uh, we're, we're moving on with Tom Holland until we can cast a Miles Morales and move forward with Spider-Man. Uh, Craig Erwick, the president of ABC and Hulu Original Programming, confirmed that the 2022 Oscar ceremony will get a host after all. This is after a three-year hiatus of not having a host. Uh, the last one was a back-to-back in 2017 and 2018, I believe, with Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, Bill. Who would you like to see host this year's uh, Oscars? And if it's Jimmy Kimmel, will you poison my cereal in the morning? <laughs> I would say, well, I mean, let's talk about before we get into a specific host. Can we talk about hosting the Oscars in general? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you've done like a 30 minute diatribe on this already. But like, let's I guess we can do it one more time. We're playing all the hits. I, I would say I'm open to them bringing back a host. If they actually use it as a host, I think the problem over the years is that hosting role 
has evolved into simply doing a stand up routine for five to seven minutes yep. and then disappearing. Yep. Uh, only to maybe come back later in the show with some bit that's like Ellen's selfie or Jimmy Kimmel bringing in randos into the audience, like some stupid bit. Uh, and all it does is waste time. I think if you had a proper host that not only did a comedy bit at the beginning or a musical bit, if you can do it right and not do it like Seth, Seth MacFarlane, if you have someone do a bit at the beginning and then take the audience through the evening regularly, create some sort of a structure narrative, like kind of bring the audience through the award ceremony, I think a host would be great. Um, but the problem is that's not how they do the host. They just, the host just ends up disappearing. And they end up doing voiceovers to introduce the, the guests anyway, which is what they've been doing the last few years is just having the voiceover person bring on the next presenters and they move on. And there's never a point of a host. I feel like you need someone with like like a very serious actor or actress with like grace and presence. Like you need like a, mm. you need like a Helen Mirren up there that can like mm. like add weight and levity to the program and have like really good kind of like you said, introductions and like build up some sort of suspense. Like you need someone that like can do that because like I agree with you. I'm over the the stand up routine. Like if I wanted to watch a comedian, I would have watched a stand up on Netflix or on YouTube or something like that. I don't need that anymore when it comes to the biggest award show of the entire year. Yeah. Helen Mir is an interesting point because because you need someone that does have some comedy chops because you don't want it to be too serious the entire evening. Can't be. But at the end of the day, for me. Anything that will make the production shorter, because that is still the biggest issue, is it's running over its three-hour allotment, which is already too long. Yeah. And a host, if they're going to do the host right, and it's going to keep things moving quickly, then great. But if the host is just going to do a bit, and then later do more bits that waste more time, and you're sitting there going, why are we doing this when we should be moving on to the next award? Then don't have a host at all. I'm fine with no host, honestly. I haven't, I have not missed it uh, in the last few years. So... Yeah, I don't uh, I don't mind them bringing back a host. I would rather them just adjust the role of the host would be my bigger my bigger uh, request. Love it. I was on uh, some looking at some tweets about who people think should be hosts. And these are just awful suggestions. Yeah, I went back and looked through the list of hosts uh, when I saw this article pop up. Jimmy Kimmel, Ellen, Chris Rock. Uh, Hugh Jackman, John, I forgot about Hugh Jackman, John Stewart, Ricky Gervais. I don't know. I mean, when we were growing up, it was Billy Crystal and he had his usual bit of like a musical number plus inserting himself using green screen into the nominated films. And I always thought that was enjoyable, maybe because I was I was younger, but uh, something like that. I don't mind if it's a, if it's a creative fun bit to open it. But again, beyond that, I think the host needs to serve the purpose of moving the show along. And instead, lately, all they've done is is slow it down, which is the biggest problem with the show overall. Speaking of moving the show forward, we got three movies we'll be talking about today. Uh, we have The yes. Tender Bar, King Richard, and 355. Bill, where do you want to start? Dealer's let's choice. Start with the, let's start with the 355. 355, um, when a top secret weapon falls into mercenary hands, a wild card CIA agent joins forces with three international agents on a lethal mission to retrieve it while staying a step of a staying a step ahead of a mysterious woman who's tracking their every move, uh, starring Jessica Chastain, Penelope Cruz and Bing Bing Fan. Uh, Bill, should I go see it? 
No. No, you should not. You love you love spy movies. I love trashy spy movies. It's my favorite genre. It really is. But this one is a joke. And let me tell you, everything you need to know about this movie happens in the cold open. So the movie opens and it introduces the MacGuffin that we're going to be chasing this entire film, which in this case is a hard drive, of course, uh, that does something terrible that will end the world, whatever. But in that opening, a special ops team like breaks into a room, right? And this spec ops team member is holding an assault rifle that has a foregrip on it to hold on to to stabilize the gun. But instead of holding the foregrip, his arm, his hand is still just under the barrel. It just like that encapsulates the lack of effort that went into this film where they, just nobody cared about what was going on. Uh, and it showed up, too, in in the lack of preparedness for the actors. Like you can tell there was not enough time to train the actors properly, uh, the way they're handling their weapons, uh, they might as well be playing laser tag out there. Like, it's just, there's no realism whatsoever, and it's so distracting. And all the women in the film have big hair or wigs, so whenever they do a far shot, you can tell it's just a stunt person wearing the same wig with the hair on it, fighting around. It's basically a stunt person reel. Like, the purpose of this film is to build a reel for the stunt people. Uh, it's just It's just so bad. And it's such a disappointment because the talent involved, like you mentioned, Jessica Chastain, Penelope Cruz, Diane Kruger, like great cast. Jessica Chastain has been trying her best to get her own John Wick between this and her last action movie, Ava. And they're just they just don't work. It's just low rent. It's just a low rent action flick. Let's rewind it. What's your feeling about cold opens? Uh, I don't mind them if they're done well. I don't like in media res opens at all. Uh, yeah, we've talked about I that don't, before. I don't uh, like Craig's that. giving you a look. In, in media res is when like uh, it's like halfway through the film, or it starts at the end of the film, and the, the record scratch, or like, hey, you're probably thinking how I got here, like you know, uh, yeah. let's yeah. rewind the clock four days ago, and then it's like, blah, 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 and it's like you know, four four days ago in a you know whatever. Yeah, yeah, in media res. The, the, the Latin in the middle of the action essentially is where it drops you and then it rewinds back and it's something that I think Breaking Bad in particular started to do it really well uh, they would even do it on a season long basis for like the, the season premiere which kind of hint at the end of the season and they build to it and Breaking Bad did it well but ever since then it, there's just been a rash of TV shows and movies that just constantly try to ape that not that Breaking Bad invented it but it definitely popularize the form to the point where it's it's everywhere i mean i remember the first time i think i realized what was like what that tactic was was like the hangover right right beautiful scene of the wedding getting set up and everything and then he was in the desert and he's like oh we fucked up blah 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 and then it rewinds back but yeah completely yeah. overdone 99 percent of the time it's it's done awfully back to the film though yeah um it seems like there's been a lot of these like spy mercenary operative movies coming out lately like yeah what's going on with this genre like we used to have like instant classics with like jason Bourne and and you know obviously M mission impossible we had yep. you know yep. james bond like what's going on here i think the problem is well, I think the popularity of John Wick is a big part of it. And I think people are aping that style of gun gunplay and trying to build it around a spy situation. Uh, 
mm-hmm. but they're not taking the right lessons from something like a Mission Impossible. For instance, this film does not have any actual good or interesting like ops or operations. Like when you're watching Ghost Protocol and they're in Dubai, like they set that scene in Mission Impossible where you know exactly what the operation is, how it's supposed to work, what the plan is. And then when it goes awry, you know why it's going awry and you're invested and you're, you're freaking out just like the team is freaking out because you know what is supposed to happen because there's, there's narrative there. And in this movie, you never know what's actually happening. It's just people running around. Most of the action scenes are just foot chases where they're just knocking pedestrians over as they run around. Like, there's just no thought that goes into a lot of these spy movies. Um, it's just, it's just, this one is just an, another waste oh, of time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we just rattled off a few, but like, what would you watch instead? You probably could name a thousand. I mentioned it on last week's episode, uh, but the protege, 100%, the protege is is a spy movie in the mold of a casino royale or something like that but is so so much more thoughtful and better than this and it also has a female lead uh, so i would absolutely recommend the protege instead love it um let's move on to king richard uh a look at how tennis superstars venus and serena williams became who they are after the coaching from their father richard williams uh played by will smith a lot of buzz around this uh, for the award season. Bill, should I go see it? Definitely. Definitely a yes for for King Richard. It's funny you say that because you were dreading watching this film. I know. <laughs> I, was, I was. I was sitting there going, why am I going to spend two and a half hours watching a, a biopic, not about the athletes, but about the athlete's father? Like I, I couldn't wrap my head around it until I saw it. And it really won me over, to be honest. Do you think Will Smith is going to get a redemption for not winning Best Actor for Pursuit of Happiness? I haven't seen Pursuit of Happiness, oh, so I don't know if it would be redemption for that. I know, I know. Blind spot for me, I'm sorry. Uh, but he very well could win it for this. Uh, he gives an outstanding performance, as everyone keeps keeps saying. It's just, the movie itself, it focuses on him as Venus and Serena's father. And I think it was a smart choice in retrospect for a couple of reasons. One, you get to focus on sort of the interiority of one character instead of trying to get into both Venus and Serena Williams's minds, because uh, that would be a little too much for one movie and they're different people. So you don't want to clump it together. So instead you have one character to focus on, but they're still in it. It's still their story as well. And it prevents a lot of the cliches of sports movies. Because it's so much more about the rise of the Williams sisters and what he did to help get them there. Obviously, they're the ones with the talent, but he cultivated it. Uh, and it shows how he got them there. So the movie, it's not your typical sports movie where there's like the Soviet rival that they place, they, you know, play against in the qualifier and then they come back around in the finale and they vanquish them. Like, yeah. it is just the buildup of them. And it doesn't get into the nitty gritty of like their rise because we all know that they rise. We know the end of the story. We know they're the greatest tennis players out there. Uh, so this is more just how they get there. And they do a really nice job with it. Uh, it's just it's really well told. And for someone who's not super into tennis, I mean, my tennis experience began with Virtua Tennis on Sega Dreamcast. That's when I only the only time I've been really interested in tennis uh, as someone who's just kind of nominally interested 
Uh, it sucked me in. I was like super into it. You start to like root for for them and their success, and it's it's really well handled. An interesting thing that I was uh, looking at when we were you know kind of doing our research prior is that the director of photography uh, for this film was uh, Rob Ellswit, who did like has done a lot of fantastic like really um, visually striking and just kind of off-kilter movies like he's done boogie nights magnolia good night and good luck there will be blood nightcrawler inherent vice you know he's basically the dp for paul thomas anderson how did like that has a certain look in my mind how did that kind of look on screen when it's a biopic that has to do with sports rather than kind of a edgy or kind of offbeat film i think I think they went more for subtlety with this one. Like it is certainly well composed uh, and it's very competently made, but it goes more for the realism piece of it. Like you feel like you're in Compton or you feel like you're at uh, the U.S. Open or whatever, whatever the case may be. Like they do a really nice job with setting in particular, making you feel like you're there. Um, So I think that his skills were definitely brought to bear, maybe not in a showy way, like like something like Good Night and Good Luck. Um, but the skill is definitely there. It's, it is just a well put together film. No doubt about it. Love it. Uh, last but not least, which has already drawn a little bit of criticism and, uh, and arguments on the, uh, 60 Instagram pages, uh, the tender bar. So a boy growing up on long Island seeks out father figures among the patrons at his uncle's bar. Directed by George Clooney, starring Ben Affleck and Ty Sheridan. Bill, should I go see it? No. I would avoid at all costs, contrary to what apparently many people seem to think, uh, according to the comments. I did not care for this film at all. I will give you the one positive first, which, you know, we talked about Ben Affleck earlier. Yeah. He is the only saving grace in this film. He is charismatic. He's got a great performance. He plays the the fun uncle in the film but otherwise the movie has no personality whatsoever can i can i have a hot take right now sure i just think he's a really overrated actor ben affleck yeah yeah no i i think he's i I don't think he's i don't think he's what a lot of people think he is i i for me i mean the fact that he keeps getting the roles these big roles in big movies i guess maybe that is an element of or a a symptom of overratedness. I don't know. I I feel like for me, Ben Affleck is very, very role by role. I think there's some roles that he does really well and works out great and he looks great in them. And then there's some roles that are disasters. Give me an example. Give me an example. Because I can go through a whole list of movies that it's just like, eh, for me. Uh, Yeah, give me, give me. Like Gone Girl. Gone Girl, flat, just not engaging. No, I disagree. The Town, Flat, not really engaging. The town is overrated overall. Argo, okay, we're we're doing pretty good. Okay, Goodwill Hunting, eh. he's a side character in that one. Yeah, but I mean, he's just you know, his Batman trash. No, 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 hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that one because I don't think his I don't think his Batman is trash. I think the writing of that of that particular Batman was trash. This is like a whole other subject we can get into about the Snyderverse and why. It, for the most part, does not work I mean, uh, because of the characterizations of those characters. Speaking to the tender bar, I think he's actually pretty good in this one. Do you think getting clean kind of did something for him? He was good. Yeah, 
speaking of getting clean, he was good in that uh, the last one before this. Uh, God, I forget the name of it. Uh, the one where he's a basketball coach. I saw that one. He's an alcoholic in it as well. The Way Back. The Way Back. That was a strong performance. That was good. That was close to his heart, I'm sure. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. But he was bad in the last duel. So, yeah, that's why I feel like he's hit or miss. I feel like he's hit or miss depending on the role. I feel like you uh, drove my point home. Um, so, Tender Bar, not that good. What should we watch well, instead? Well, hold on. Let me. Can I explain why the Tender Bar is so bad first? You can do whatever you want. It's your podcast. Thank you. The Tender Bar is a memoir. It's like a slice of life coming of age movie uh, with a main character. They show him as a child and they hop back and forth between him as a child and him as a college student. And when he's older, he's played by Ty Sheridan, who's fine. He's generally reliable, but a a bit flat. He's raised by a single mother who should have been played by Laura Linney or Laura Dern, because then you would have instant gravitas, but you don't. Uh, The problem with the movie is the writing does not feel like real life. It's one of those movies where you're listening to these characters and you're like, this is not how humans talk, which is fine. Give Give me an example. I don't, I don't remember the exact quotes, but like the mother is constantly telling him how he's going to go to Yale. And if it's the last thing I do, you're going to go to Yale and like all this stuff about trying to raise him. It's just it doesn't feel real. And, you know, when you watch a movie like the 355, a spy movie, a genre movie, of course, it's not going to be how humans talk. That's but that's par for the course. When you're watching what is supposed to be a memoir and an intimate human drama. It just feels stiff. It feels phony. It feels like a movie with a capital M. You know what I mean? Mm. And then you add in the fact that nothing really happens in the movie. There's no real lessons learned. No obstacles overcome. It's just a dude growing up in the 70s, going to Yale. And the only conflict is that there's a girl that he likes that doesn't like him. Like, that. that's it. And, it, and it's it's so frustrating to see it because the other piece of it is he wants to be a writer. That's the whole thrust of the movie, is he wants to be a writer. Uh, And why? I don't really know. There's no real motivation. It's all tell. It's not show. It's just him saying, I want to be a writer. Sure. And we don't actually see him have any passion for writing. We never see him write. We never show him in an English class, like, really getting amped up about writing. We don't get examples of what he writes to show that he is a good writer. And the movie is narrated. So you would think the narration would be excerpts from his writing or something to that effect. No, not at all. Hmm. And then the last thing I'll say, because this also just really got me fired up, is there are these on-the-nose needle drops because the movie takes place in the 70s. And George Clooney is the director, and he's done good work directing. But in this, it was so amateurish, and the soundtrack is so suffocating that every scene change, the needle drops, and there's this classic hit from the 70s blasting through your ears. I just, I couldn't, I could not enjoy it at all. It just felt like an exercise in vanity and uh, just a huge disappointment. Wow. Super passionate. I get that. Love that about you. Why you say it to me, it makes sense. Why are so many people passionate and adamant that you're wrong? Because everyone on Instagram was like, no, no, no. Like you're, you're a hundred percent incorrect about this review. I think that people are stupid. (laughs) I think, well, well, I mean, close. I think part of it is it does take place in the Northeast. 
And there are a lot of hallmarks of growing up in the Northeast. There's they go candle pin bowling. The areas they drive around in look familiar to a lot of people where we are. I think a lot of people. An uncle puts a parliament light out on your shoulder and then like forgets that you're there and then buys you a beer to like make you feel better. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people see their own childhood in it potentially. I think again, Affleck is very good and he kind of wins people over. Um, but I, maybe, and I think part of it is people don't. Maybe they're not paying as much attention to the writing as I am, or it because it feels like movie writing, standard movie writing that people are accustomed to. They just go with it, but to me, it stands out as as hackish. Um, and the needle drops is funny. I think was distracting and annoying as hell. And someone else told me they absolutely love the soundtrack. So like, yeah, I I don't know, but but the way I saw it, and I have you know, I get this feedback. I hear from from our audience. I listen. I try to absorb it, and I am one hundred percent still confident in my take. <laughs> I will not back down on this point. Uh, what should we what should we watch instead of the tender bar thank you for asking I would say if you wanted something like this where it's kind of a, a dramedy some drama some comedy and it's about a kid growing up and then going to college you should watch Lady Bird love it if you wanted something that was more on the comedy side you could watch Edge of 17 with Haley Steinfeld and Woody Harrelson mm-hmm. we love uh, that was, Haley that was a, yeah, that was kind of a, an overlooked movie from a few years ago. Or if you wanted a movie that was more drama-based about coming of age, uh, you could watch Ordinary People, the best picture winner from the 80s, directed by Robert Redford, a classic. Uh, all those would be better options than this, in my opinion. Uh, I was going to add another one to that list. Um, coming of age on on past dramedy into like um, depression, would be um, Beautiful Boy with uh, Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell. Did not see that one. Oh, I saw that in an airplane on a, on a flight once, and it was the worst idea of my entire life. <laughs> it was like literally like someone just like took like a Nalgene and just threw it on my face. Um, <laughs> okay. Another one of a good coming of age story. Kid battles with um, with drug addiction. Steve Carell is the, the father, Timothy Chalamet, who I normally can't stand. Actually does a really good job in the film. Really well uh, shot and directed. Um, but another example of a good coming of age story if you want something a little bit different. Nice. Uh, before we wrap up, what uh, what's on your docket for the week? What are we watching? Act 3, our looking ahead segment here. Um, the main thing that I'm watching right now is... So I, I've been telling you this a lot lately, but I'm currently listening to an audiobook of a biography of Walt Disney and it is absolutely fascinating and like blowing my mind. And so I've been kind of going back and as the story of Walt Disney is progressing, I've been trying to kind of watch the things as they happen. So it starts with, you know, Mickey Mouse obviously and a lot of shorts. So like Steamboat Willie and the three little pigs. So like I I've been pulling those up and watching those as they talk about them in the book then moving on to Snow White and Fantasia and Bambi. And so I'm kind of like working through the the Disney oeuvre from the beginning. Now with all this background information about Walt himself, the history of the studio, the influence on cinema which and animation, which cannot be overstated. And it's been a really interesting journey because I generally have not been a huge Disney advocate. I usually, you know, this, a lot of the later stuff 
I don't particularly care for. And this earlier stuff, I didn't really think too much about. You kind of grow up with it, but that's it. But when you hear about the importance of it and the significance of it, especially in, in the medium that I love so much of film, it's really interesting to go back and watch it, watch it with a fresh perspective and that extra background. So uh, I was just in the middle of Fantasia before I started recording this podcast. So it's been really, uh, it's been really interesting to go back and watch that. So I'm going to keep working my way through that. Uh, what about you? I have uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth queued up. Um, I started it nice. last week. Um, we were both tired. We both fell asleep, so I wasn't able to finish it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cue that up and get that done. And then looking forward, um, me and you talked about this briefly, but uh, Will Arnett has a new show coming out on Netflix. Remember we talked about this? Yes. Yep. Murderville. Uh, so basically the premise is Will Arnett is a murder detective, and then every week he gets a new guest on the show to be his what's the word i'm looking for partner yeah his partner so like one week is going to be conan o'brien you know the next week is whoever right i think kumail nachmiani is one of them yeah like yeah. basically like all triple a actors the best part it's completely unscripted i think will understands what the episode's about and all the supporting cast knows what's happening but um each co-star each week has no idea what's about and it's completely improv um, and I'm really excited to see how absolutely insane that's going to be. Yeah, that sounds fascinating to me. I, I mean, it could be a dumpster, it could be a dumpster fire, or it could be. I mean, they're going to make sure it's not if they're going to put it out on Netflix. But that sounds like a blast. So it, apparently, it's based off of a BBC series called Murder in Successville, which is, I guess, it's based off the same premise. Um, oh, and it okay. Won a ton of awards. Um, in the EU and the UK and uh, Netflix basically bought rights to it and is going to do this American version and comes out, I believe, the week of February 3rd or 4th. I'll definitely have to uh, check that out as well, for sure. Love a good good laugh. I think that's all I got for today, Bill. That's it for this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Should I Go See It podcast. Please make sure to follow on Instagram. If you have not, at Should I Go See It, feel free to leave comments, send messages. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll talk to you soon.